We began a series in the letter to the Ephesians um, not so long back, and um, I want to read to you another section of the first chapter. Now, these next verses are from verse 15 onwards. Um, Begin a point when Paul begins to explain what it is he prays for when he thinks about the Ephesian Christians. I value these moments in Paul's letters, partly because you get an insight just into what it is that we should care about uh, when we think about praying for ourselves, praying for the church of God. And you get a window into the heart of the Apostle Paul himself, who is by any measure uh, one of the most extraordinary people who's ever lived. And therefore, um, the insights you can draw from his prayers alone are truly profound. And I want to read to you then what he says to them in chapter 1, verse 15. He says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who who fills all in all. Now, Lord willing, I want to dwell on this passage for a couple of weeks, and just think about the early part this evening. And obviously, when Paul's writing to, preaching to, and here praying for Christians, what he is longing to do is to agitate within them greater affection for God, a deeper longing for his glory. I know that we live in an age where strong belief and a particularly emotionally and passionately held belief is actually something that's regarded with a measure of suspicion. It's something that's seen as being potentially dangerous. We have words. We describe people as being extremist or being fanatical. And uh, we have good reason for that, of course. The world is often ripped apart by people with dogmatic views of what truth is that, that compete with other truth claims and cause all kinds of friction and tension and often war and bloodshed in the world in which we live. And so it's seen as the root of much evil. And living as we do in... Britain, I know not all of you um, would consider yourself to be British or born here, raised here, but British people instinctively want to retreat into something more measured, something more polite, something more tentative, uncertain, and, and just generally less emotional. But I don't have much sympathy for that view at all. I think it fails to ask and answer the fundamental question that ought to guide us, which is whether the things that we believe and speak about are true or not. And it seems to me that if the Christian faith is not true, then being 
interested in it at all is a mistake. It ought to be dismantled and taken apart piece by piece. But if on the other hand, the things that we believe and testify to, the things that Paul himself preached, that Jesus Christ was the Son of God born in the flesh, that he lived a life that was so admired by his closest disciples for its perfection, wisdom, and beauty, that he was willing to endure the cross for the sins of the world, and that he was raised from the dead, and this was witnessed to by hundreds of people, and that he will come to judge the living and the dead, and knowledge which drove Paul in his urgency and passion to tell the gospel to the nations. If these things are true, then it seems to me that no degree of desire, of passion, of engagement is too much for this Jesus. And I look at my own life and I, I often reflect on the gap between the things that I profess to be true about Christ and the reality of my spiritual warmth. And I would consider myself to be someone who loves God, and yet I'm always aware that why can't I give more? Why am I not more passionate, more prayerful, more engaged with the things of God? And it brings up this re reality for us that there is obviously within the Christian faith, within a gathering such as this one, there is a spectrum of belief, isn't there? Or a spectrum of engagement with the things of God. It was true in the time of the New Testament. You know, we've been talking about Paul. It's not as though Paul was himself, um, he, he was a standout figure. When he describes his love and devotion and sacrifice for the Lord, he was red hot and burning and passionate for him. And he was obviously a standout, extraordinary exception to what was often the norm within church congregations. Jeremy's been preaching through the letters to the churches in Revelation. You see how Jesus speaks to those churches, and you see a different kind of spiritual temperature within each gathering, within, each, within congregations and within individuals. So that he can say, for example, to Ephesus, he says, I know you're enduring patiently. There's an affirmation there. Or he says to Pergamum, you hold fast my name. But then the opening line of the letter to the church in Sardis is, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. So evidently, already in the time of the New Testament, there were different ways that people were expressing their devotion to the Lord. We had the same confession, but the people who confess the name of Christ, we differ from person to person. And there are those, I think we can describe a spectrum here. There are those at the one end of the spectrum who are perhaps just nominal in their faith. This word means that you take the name of Jesus, but... It's not necessarily animated by any real spirituality, any life inside of you. And then there are those who are kind of in a position where they may just be sort of tepid or compromised. And there's, there's a love for the Lord, but it's also overshadowed by the realities and the cares of life and the temptations that you're entangled in. And many people find themselves in this position. And then there are those who, who are walking steadily with Jesus and are kind of faithful, but often dutiful and perhaps sometimes um, stoic sense. And then at the other end of the spectrum, when you see this in the life of the Apostle Paul, there are those whose zeal and heat and passion of their love burns with extraordinary fire. And that's just the reality, isn't it? Now, I say all that because... The question I want to ask you is, what makes the difference? What is it that turns somebody from 
you know, having barely any faith or just the mere flicker of a confession to someone who, whose whole life is consumed with the things of God, whose energies and passions and time and devotion aligns with the truth that they confess that Jesus is Lord. What is it that draws a person towards him in that kind of zealous love and being, becoming someone who's wholly alive to the things of God? This is a little question I want to ask with you. And I think this is what Paul was longing for when he was writing to and praying for the Ephesian Christians. He opens with a thanksgiving because he said, I've heard of your faith in the Lord and your love toward all the saints. This isn't a sick church. There were churches that Paul visited and preached to or wrote to that were genuinely full of kind of spiritual sickness and maladies. This isn't one of them. There's a lot that's good and to be praised in their devotion to Jesus. But even here, there's something that drives him to his knees. A longing, an earnest desire for them. And I want to ask you, what is it that makes the difference? What is it that he prays for in the lives of believers that would enliven them and wake them up to the things of God? I want to say, first of all, I want to give a few answers to this that kind of work together in this passage. But the first thing I want to say is this, that you need more of the spirit and presence of God in your life. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. And he's speaking here clearly of the Holy Spirit that Christ promised to pour out upon his church. Now, I know that we, we began to think about the Holy Spirit last week because of the theme that we opened up then. I want to quickly affirm here that when you look at Paul's letters, he clearly believed and taught that anybody who is a Christian is only a Christian because of the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. There's no other way that you could confess that Jesus is Lord. In fact, that's exactly how he puts it. In his letter to the Corinthians, some of you will be familiar with a great passage where he deals with the spiritual gifts, and there was obviously rivalries going on in the Corinthian church where some people were displaying their spiritual gifts in such a way that it, they were trying to outdo each other, and it became a little bit chaotic and messy. And he opens up that whole section where he's beginning to speak to them about the work of the Spirit in their, com in their community and the reality of spiritual gifts. And this is what he says to them. He says, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. It was Paul's belief and conviction and practice and teaching that if you can say, and I don't just mean the words, but if you can say with faith and belief, Jesus is Lord, such as that, so that that claim begins to control your life, then that is a work of the Holy Spirit in you. There's no other way that you can begin to see and believe these things are true, except by the gift of the Spirit who's been at work in you. And you can think back, perhaps, on your own testimony, your journey to faith, and you know the point at which things began to change. You know, when you felt God's work in your life, when 
you became convicted of sin and when you began to desire him and when the gospel made sense to you and the penny dropped and then you began to believe this thing. And all of that is described in the New Testament as the work of God. It has to be God. There's no way that we can do this for ourselves aside from the work of God. Paul's even more clear in, his, in a little bit earlier in that same book in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. He's saying the reality of who Jesus is and his claims on your life. These things cannot be received, believed, and accepted without a work of God in you. He puts it even more explicitly a little earlier. He says, we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So I don't believe that it's possible to be a Christian without the Holy Spirit having brought about a change inside you, the new birth, the reality of regeneration, what it means to be born again. And maybe you're saying, look, I have no idea. I don't identify at all with what you're speaking about. And therefore, the question is, well, maybe you haven't experienced this transforming work in your life. And the Lord wants to move nearer to you this evening and help you understand the goodness of his love for you and how he wants to change your life. But that's my conviction. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God has done that work in you. But then, why does Paul pray as he does here? He's just said to the Ephesian Christians in in chapter 1, verse 13, that when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So he is saying these are spirit-filled believers. These are Christians who have the Spirit of God in them. But in the same breath almost... He can begin to describe to them his earnest prayer that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And to my mind, the only way I can understand and reconcile the things that Paul is saying is to recognize this. I can put this both negatively and positively. The negative way of putting it is like this, that there are aspects of truth and the reality of who God is that you cannot fully grasp or comprehend unless the Spirit of God is at work in you. Or to put it positively, the Spirit can deepen and enlarge your capacity to know God. I know this from many years of being a preacher. Preaching is a thrilling and frustrating work to be engaged in. Because you pour your heart and soul into the task of opening the scriptures and explaining to people the things of God. And you're met with varying reactions all the time. The people who you want to get through to may be dull and deaf to the things that you're trying to say. Or it makes no real impact upon their life. And when as hard as and persuasive as you want to articulate a truth, it doesn't necessarily register or bring about the change. But then other times you see rapid and extraordinary change. Sometimes I'll be preaching a theme and I'll have said something dozens of times and I know that a particular person might be struggling with a particular issue and what I'm saying just doesn't get through to them until they chat with a friend at Life Group and then suddenly, lo and behold, they get it. All of a sudden, I'm not resentful at all, but you know, that's what happens. And how do I explain the mystery of the work of God in our lives? And to me, the answer is the Spirit Jesus said that the Spirit blows where he wills. 
And this is, this is what can happen in your own life and experience, that God can suddenly bring about an understanding, a reality, a depth of comprehension, of grasping the things of God in a way that you don't only accept it at an intellectual level, but it begins to permeate and penetrate and transform your life from the inside out. I remember, for example, a, a friend of mine who was part of Grace when we, pretty much when we began. He was here in the first year and a wonderful guy, but he was, he'd struggled. He'd been away from God and he'd come back to the Lord and he struggled to accept what I, we discussed, which was that the Bible is the word of God. He, he could recognize that there was precious truth in here. He, there was a sense in which he could kind of reason it through in his mind. But there was a distance between him and the Bible. And I, you know, I knew that it would take a work of the Spirit in him to bring about that conviction that he knows this is God's word. But it didn't matter how much I, were, I read a book with him. I talked with him at length about these issues. I couldn't bring him to the point of persuasion and conviction on this issue. And then one day, out of the blue, he just texted me and said, I get it. I've experienced what you described, the witness of the Spirit in reading the Scriptures, and I, I now know and accept what you've been saying. And it wasn't, you know, I, obviously I'd laid the groundwork in explaining the doctrine to him, the teaching to him, but it took a, the breath of God in his life to suddenly open him up to new truth. And I have no doubt that he was saved, but Suddenly, there was a new dimension to the faith. He'd been sealed with the Spirit, but now the Spirit of wisdom and revelation was poured out to him in a new way. I have another friend, to give you a completely different story, another friend who had spent some time in London, a precious dear friend of ours, and she is one of the most extroverted, joyful people you'll ever meet. A really amazing personality. And, uh, and yet, she had very sadly sunk into a, a horrible depression, and this depression took such a hold on her that she, you know, from being the kind of person who would never be quiet, I mean, she was talking even when no one was listening, she suddenly could barely string a sentence together. Her, her mind was so oppressed and, and trapped into the darkness of depression and anxiety. There was a deep furrow on her forehead as she worried all day long, and there was, she was a completely different person. So sick she became that her, her sister brought her back to her home to be with the family, the twin sister, and, they, and she was there to recover. She began to see a doctor, get medication, you know, and there was all kinds of effort to try and rehabilitate her to a sense of herself, to, to be herself again. And then one day, my wife answered the phone, and she was on the other end of the phone, and she just said, it's me, I've been healed. And at first my wife didn't believe it, because you know she's a doctor, she knows that depression doesn't typically just lift like that, it's generally a gradual thing, but it was literally an overnight transformation. We asked her, what happened? After definitely clarifying it was her and not the twin sister who was on the phone, we got that clear, it was you, you've been here, what happened? And she said she'd been to go and listen to the preaching, of Dr. Michael Eaton, the late Dr. Michael Eaton, who was one of my favorite preachers, and he was preaching in her hometown through Romans. And he got into Romans 6, and he began to speak about what the triumphant Christian life is, and the grace of God, and the gospel, and its power in our lives. And suddenly, the Spirit at work through the preaching transformed her instantaneously, and all the oppression and heaviness that she'd been carrying was lifted off her instantly. And she was healed in that moment 
through the preaching of the gospel. She was a believer. There's no question of that. But the Spirit did something in her. And it seems to me that this is what I've seen happen time and time again in people's lives. You can be walking in a persistent pattern of sin. And a friend might challenge you, and a sermon might bring some measure of conviction, but not enough for you to actually want to go away and change. And then the Holy Spirit does a work in you that no person or no amount of words could accomplish. Jesus said he would pour out the Holy Spirit who bring conviction concerning sin. And what I'm trying to show you is that there are all kinds of ways and dimensions in the Christian life in which the Holy Spirit is poured out on us in order to expand and enlarge our capacity to know and understand the things of God. And this is what he's praying for for them. They're believers. They have the Spirit, but he's on his knees. He's earnest in prayer for them that the God of glory, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, will pour out the Spirit of wisdom and revelation upon them. You may be someone who's saying, look, my soul is dry and I feel like my, my, my faith is paper thin. It takes a work of God in you. It takes the Spirit of God in you to deepen and expand your soul. You need more of the Spirit and His presence in your life. Now related to that, there's a second thing I want to add here, which really flows out of this, which is that you need more of the knowledge of God. Also, And this is very clear from what it is that Paul is praying for. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. Now, when you're reading Paul's letters to the churches, and in many of his letters, he begins to explain what he's praying for for the people, for the Christians. And this is a theme that just keeps coming through time and time again. Here's a few lines from, his other, from other places. From Ephesians 3, he's praying that they may have strength to comprehend. You know, the, the power to understand would be a paraphrase. When he's writing to the Colossians, he says that he's praying that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He's praying for them to be filled with knowledge. He says it again in Philippians 1. He's praying that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. What is it? Why was Paul so obsessed with Christians knowing more and grasping more and understanding more? And I don't think you can really answer that apart from understanding the biography of the man. Let me explain to you some of the things that have happened in his life. When we first meet Paul, we meet a man who had devoted himself for the early years of his life to the immersion in and the study of the scriptures. So he had sought to understand the mind and the plan of God, but clearly in a very blinkered and narrow way. But nevertheless, his mind was full of, of knowledge, a form of knowledge. And then he's walking down the Damascus Road. He's intent on arresting Christians in order to have them killed. And what happens to him? He encounters the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Jesus. And he's blinded by the sight. And not long after, just a couple of days later, he goes into town. And a man named Ananias, a devout believer who has been praying, God's spoken to him and said, you need to go and pray for Paul to be filled with the Spirit. 
And at first, there's an anxiety in him, in him because he knows he's a dangerous man. He doesn't, want to pray. he doesn't want to be anywhere near Paul. But he obeys God and he goes and prays for him to receive the Holy Spirit. And Luke tells us that something like scales fell off Paul's eyes. So often, moments like this of healing and transformation, especially in the New Testament, are deeply symbolic of spiritual reality. Scales fell off his eyes. In other words, he begins to see like he's never seen before. Of course, the physical sight restored to him. But what is more important is that he begins to see Jesus. The Spirit begins to awaken his heart to who Jesus is, that he's the Lord. He is the Messiah. He's not some upstart pretender like Paul had thought before. And that's not enough for Paul either. Having been immersed in Scripture, encountered Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, his life continues on in that vein so that even in... Even in one of his letters in Philippians chapter 3, he, begins, he speaks about his longing and desire and ambition. And he says, look, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And he begins to describe all the things that he's let go of in order that I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share his sufferings and so on. And what you're beginning to glimpse as you open up, you open up the life of this man was someone who had experienced successive chapters in his life of deeper knowledge of God and of the ways of God. That had expanded and enlarged his understanding and gripped him from the inside out in a life-controlling, obsessed way. So obsessed had he become with Jesus that in, again, in, in the letter to the Philippians, some of you will be familiar with this, but in the first chapter, there's this beautiful passage in which he is... He's, he's caught in the horns of a dilemma between, do I want to be executed so that I can go and be with Jesus right now? Or do I want to stay on earth so that I can tell more people about him? This is a real dilemma. To you, it sounds like a no-brainer, doesn't it? But to him, it's like, I can't decide which is best. To go be with Jesus now or to just tell more people about him while I can and have breath. And so, I, listen, what you're seeing is a man who'd so been consumed with and obsessed with the reality of Christ that it controlled every dimension of his life and of his love and of what he gave and how he wanted to devote his time and his energy to the things of God. And out of that comes this urgency. If only they could see what I see. You know a little bit of what that pressure can feel like on your soul if ever you encounter something good in your life. You go somewhere nice to eat, or you visit an extraordinary place, or you hear amazing music. The first thing you want to do is share it with another because it enhances and enlarges your joy. And there's something like that going on in the heart of the apostle when he thinks about the Christians. He says they're saved, but there's more. And you, listen, you may well object and say, look, if they're believers already, don't they already know God? And I will say, absolutely, you're not a Christian unless you know God. You've met God. You've experienced him. There's been some reality of this in your life. It's not just, it's not just an idea. But what Paul's talking about here is something deeper than that. There is a difference, isn't there, between knowing and knowing. 
And he piles up all these words to kind of express and explain what it is he's praying for. He's praying for the spirit, he says, of wisdom and revelation. In other words, that they'll begin to see more than they've ever seen before. He prays for this in order that they, of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And the word he uses there is an unusual word because the normal Greek word for knowledge is, is gnosis. And he expands it. He uses the word epignosis, which the commentators tell us means a real deep, thorough knowledge. And then he talks about having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. He's saying that there is, there is a, an understanding, a comprehension that's far beyond what you've seen up to this point. And you know this, don't you, from your personal experience in life. That there is, there is knowledge that can sit in your brain as cold facts. But unless it gets into your heart, it doesn't change your life. Let me use a negative illustration of that, that there is, there is all kinds of advice that trickles down to us from the government about how we should be healthy. You know, don't consume so much sugar, uh, count your calories, don't smoke, and whatever else is that we're told to do by the great mother that is the state, the almighty state. And in, in uh, anyway, let's not go there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, these things, you know, you, you don't deny it. You say, yes, that's absolutely true. But it's only with, and you, most of you are very young, so this is, this is, this is not going to be experienced just yet, but you'll reach a point in life where, where suddenly you have a scare. You know, you go to the doctor and they check, they check your, um, your, your, your blood sugar levels and they, they discover that you've been, you've, been, you've been vastly over-consuming the wrong stuff for way too long. Or you've had a, you know, a habit of smoking that you've been unable to shake and then there's a shadow in your lung or it happens to a loved one. And suddenly, the knowledge that you had, that was, you didn't deny it, it was there. You understood this at an intellectual level. Suddenly, it trickles down into your life and begins to change you. You, you take action. There's a difference between knowing and knowing, isn't there? Or to use a more positive example, you know, I, I, can, I can tell you and explain to you, and you can accept that having a child is a life-changing experience that you'll discover the capacity to love like you never knew you had. And it will, there'll be an awe, a sense of awe in holding your own baby. And you can recognize it and receive that. But unless and until God gives you your own child, then that will remain just knowledge. But suddenly the experience is a transforming reality. And this is what I'm trying to explain to you. John Stott puts it like this. He says, the knowledge for which Paul prays is more Hebrew than Greek. In concept, it adds the knowledge of experience to the knowledge of understanding. Such knowledge is impossible without revelation. In other words, it's impossible without the grace of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. What he's praying for then is this. I think we can put it like this, that wherever we see deficiencies in our Christian walk, wherever there's a gap between your confession, the things that you believe, and the reality of how you're living it out, perhaps sin that you can't shake, or a difficulty in prayer, or a lack of generosity, or a lack of devotion to the church, the body of Christ, or whatever else it is, wherever there's a distance between your confession and the reality, 
What's lacking there is very often not just this intellectual knowledge, but the, the work of the Spirit. The experience of God to enlarge your love and your desire to bring you to conviction, to bring you to change, to bring you to repentance and transformation. Or on the other hand, wherever you see a man or a woman wholly alive to the things of God, that man or that woman has encountered and experienced God. You see it all through Scripture. Individuals face-to-face, as it were, with the living God and the transformation that takes place within them. And this is what Paul is praying for, for the Christians. And it's not something that I can create or produce or conjure up. It has to be a work of God. It has to be a work of God, but thank God He wants to do it in every one of you. Which brings me to the last point. I want to phrase it like this, that you need more of the reality of God. I want to read you the verses and just explain what I mean by this. He prays that, they, that God may give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And then he says three things, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Now, what I mean here when I use this phrase, the reality of God, to sum this up, it is primarily, of course, the, the deeply felt knowledge that God is real. I often think of it this way, that the, the failure in a Christian to live up to the things that we believe is a failure to live as though God is real. When you examine your life, you take, for example, your prayer life. Whatever deficiencies in there is a failure to live as though God is real, right? And if you knew it in the, the way that you know that you know that you know it, then you'd never be off your knees and out of prayer. And so I mean it in that sense, the reality of God, but I also mean it in the bigger sense of the, the reality that God defines. All that he says and, and, and all that he describes and all that is true because God says it is true. The reality of God. And this is the fundamental tension, I think, that Christians are caught in in terms of the discipleship growth of your life. Whenever you're stunted, stalled, or backsliding, this is the tension that exists in your heart. That we're caught between two competing definitions of reality. We have on the one hand, reality as it appears to us through our senses. The immediacy of the pleasures of this world. The opportunities that lie in front of you. The desires of your own heart that sometimes are illicit and go against what God says is good and righteous and just. The opportunities there, what you hear, see and smell, the world, its pleasures, all that is here in the present. And then all that the Bible says is true. The God who made us, who is a good God, who loves us, who's called us into his presence, who wants to offer us riches and treasures in eternity that far eclipse and exceed anything, any temporary pleasure that you can enjoy in this world. And it seems to me that the Christian's basic battle of the heart 
is the competition between those two versions of reality. And so far as you're believing God's story, you're living in it. And as much as you're doubting it, then you're, you're, you're indulging your, your just temporary desires and, and pleasure, fleeting pleasures. It seems to me this tension exists all the way through the teachings of Jesus. You, know, you take anything, take money, for example. Jesus says this is, this is the battle of the heart. Do you want to store up and lay up treasures here where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal? Or do you want to be generous and open-hearted with the things that God has given to you to steward and lay up treasures in heaven? You think no one in their right mind gives away their things on some future promise of reward in heaven unless they believe it is true. That's the tension, isn't it? Or it's true of sexual desire. The sexual promise is one of immediate gratification. Give your flesh what it wants and you'll be happy. If only for a night. And Jesus comes in and he cuts across this and he says, look, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter, enter life maimed than to, to burn, as it were, in hell. And he's saying, look, there's a competing story here. Do you want to forego temporary pleasure so that you can have everlasting joy? Or would you give up everlasting joy for the opportunity of a momentary glimpse of fleeting pleasure? It's there in all of his teaching around discipleship and self-denial and comfort and the tension of the human heart around these things. It's why Christ calls us to take up our cross and die because he's saying, look, it's not about the here and now. And whoever's given up houses or lands or fathers or brothers or mothers or sisters for my sake and for the gospel will have a hundred times more in this life and in the life to come eternal life. Can you see how every battle you face in your day-to-day -day Christian life is the tension, the war that exists between these two competing definitions of what is good and what is happiness? And this is why Paul prays. And he pray it for us today. He prays that you'll see something you've never seen. That you'll see, first of all, the hope to which he's called you. So that you who struggle in fear and doubt and anxiety will suddenly be a person who exudes joy and optimism and life because you know what God said is true. The hope is unshakable. This is why he prays that those that you'll know the, the, uh, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, so that you who are bound up in selfish pursuits and in, in, in disobedience or in self-preservation, a kind of closed life, will suddenly be able to open up your life because you say, I can't outgive God. And the fruit of this faith is generosity and service and devotion and love for others. And that those of you you know, he prays also that you'll know the immeasurable greatness of his power. So that those who are caught and entangled in sin habits and in doubt and in defeat, crushed by the weight of frustration and failure in day-to-day -day life, might suddenly know that God is able. 
the battle that you're facing is by no means finished and that God wants to overcome the problems that you're facing and give you freedom and joy and liberty. And suddenly when you see it, you can know how, what it is to serve God, what it is to have strength and might in the Lord, what it is to witness out of a sense of confidence because you know this gospel is true. There are two portraits, aren't there, friends? You can see, you can see the, the limping Christian. The Christian who's in a position of defeat and coldness of heart and, and doubt and, and um, all kinds of entanglement with, with this world. And then you can see someone like the Apostle Paul, ready to give everything, alive to God, full of conviction, willing to sacrifice, full of happiness in Jesus, because this is more real to him than all the mess we're in in this world. What is it, friends, that we need? In some ways, what I've been describing will be biographical for many of you. It describes the journey you've been on up to now. God has been doing this work in you already. It explains why you have life in you. But there's more, isn't there? We need more of God. We need, more. we need to know him. We need to see his reality. And we need the grace of the spirit of God in and upon us to show us these things. Only he can destroy and shatter the doubts and the lies of this world and the entanglements that seem so powerful. Only he can make us truly alive to the Lord.